0: You're listening to the Mens Rea Podcast, and this is the story of a few days in May. You'll notice if you review newspaper archives from the last two decades of the 20th century in Ireland. In the mid-1990s, headlines begin to scream that yet another person has been murdered. At the end of the year, there may be a rundown of all the violent killings and missing persons from that year. Statistics are cited that murders are up on previous years. It seems that just as violent paramilitaries slow attacks related to the border in Northern Ireland, gangland activity ratcheted up, elderly people are targeted in their isolated rural homes, and some robberies turn into beatings leading to death. But less explainable is the seeming increase in the killings of women. Women were killed in their own homes. Women were killed while walking home. Women disappeared while out during the day. In the space of three days in May 1996, in three separate incidents in various parts of the country, three women lost their lives. On Sunday, the 5th of May 1996, in the early morning, near to 8 am, there was a knock on the door of 33 year old Martina Halligan's house in Buttercup Park in Darndale, a council estate in the north suburbs of Dublin. Shortly after this, neighbours heard a woman scream, someone help, he's trying to kill me. Martina ran from her house and a near neighbour heard glass smashing. The woman came down her stairs and looked out the window to see Martina Halligan lying on the ground outside, bleeding heavily. An ambulance was called and Martina was brought to the nearby Beaumont Hospital. There, she was pronounced dead. Martina had been stabbed a number of times with a kitchen knife. Some of the wounds went right through her body and one had penetrated her brain. Shocked neighbours recalled the chaotic disturbance for the press, noting that Martina's eight-year-old son Shane had come out of the house in the wake of the attack and they'd heard the attacker yell at the boy. The women from the road told the Irish Independent that just the day before Martina's son had made his first communion. They added that Martina was a quiet woman who lived for her kids, and she was generous and kind. Others recalled that Martina had beautiful green eyes, she was fit and active, and had been a good swimmer in her younger years. She'd worked as a cleaner at night. In her early 20s, she'd met and fallen in love with a builder from Clontarf, and the two had had a son and daughter together and lived in Darndale before they split. After her death, Martina's former partner David told the Evening Herald paper that the two had been stubborn and they clashed in that way. He said Martina thought that this was down to both of them being the same star sign, Taurus's. Martina volunteered as a community mother in Darndale, where she helped new mums just home from the hospital with their babies by giving them advice and support. On top of that, Martina also volunteered with an adult learning group, teaching people to read. According to the Evening Herald, it was actually at this adult literacy class that she had met Michael Halligan. After a whirlwind romance, the two had married in 1994, blending their families. Both had two children from previous relationships. Martina moved from her own home in Darndale into Halligan's house in the estate, giving back her original home to the council. But Martina and Michael Halligan began having problems soon after. Martina had eventually gone to the Gardie, telling them that she had been assaulted by Halligan. In May of 1995, Martina reported an assault. It had begun as pushing, she said, which had devolved, culminating in Halligan putting his hands around Martina's neck. At the time, Gardie noted bruises consistent with what Martina had described to them. Her friends had also said that she was terrified of Halligan. At that point, Martina had decided that she just wanted Halligan out of the house. She had at one point been escorted to the house by Gardie in order to pack up her and her kids' things before going to stay in a hostel. Halligan was charged with a first assault in June, but this was withdrawn. Another charge was put to him in July, but no conviction resulted from this either. However, Martina was eventually granted a barring order against Halligan, and Michael moved out of the Darndale house with his kids, ending up in England. Later, on the 5th of May 1996, after Martina had been assaulted and killed, Michael Halligan walked into Rahini Garda station, not far from his former home, and handed himself in to police. He was interviewed there about what had happened to Martina, and he told Gardi, quote, I never intended to do Martina any serious injury, much less kill her. I'm very, very sorry. My life is all messed up. And of course, I'm very concerned about the kids. End quote. Michael Halligan was brought to the district court late on Sunday night, appearing before Judge Thelma King, where evidence of arrest was heard. Halligan had simply answered no in response to the charge of murder when it was put to him by Detective Sergeant Cahill Crian at 20 to 10 that night. Halligan appeared with Garrett Sheehan as his solicitor, and he was remanded into custody by the judge there until the following Friday. At that point, he was remanded once again. Later, more was learned about Michael Halligan's background, too. According to the Sunday Tribune, Halligan had been a pyromaniac in his youth, getting caught setting fire to a number of buildings, including schools. His first partner had been an older single mother, whom he treated like a mother substitute, according to the paper. The couple had had two boys together, and they all lived in her flat in Ballymun. Halligan had eventually left the relationship and the family as a whole, but two weeks later, the older woman had died of a heart attack. Their two boys then went to live with Halligan, and the family moved out to Darndale to the house that they would eventually, however briefly, share with Martina and her kids. Michael Halligan had an inconsistent work record but he'd held a job as a caretaker at a school and he did a bit of gardening as well. The Tribune also reported that Halligan disliked Martina's women friends because they were telling Martina to leave him. It was revealed that Martina may have even called women's aid for help but she had nowhere to go had she left Halligan as she'd given up her own council house when they married. This episode is sponsored in part by our good friends, Best Fiends. That's friends without the R. This is the time of year where I'm looking for distractions so that I don't end up the first house on the road with decorations up for the holiday that cannot yet be named. Best Fiends is absolutely perfect to redirect my thoughts at this time of year and it's also one of the little treats I'm giving myself in my new and ever-evolving work routine. I've been playing for ages now and I can't get enough. This five-star rated puzzle game is packed with super fun brain challenges and never-ending entertainment. There's always new cute characters to collect or a new level to defeat and there's now over 7,000 levels if you're up for a challenge. I know I absolutely am. I can't resist it. And if you want to race me, you can add me in the game by entering the code 1932267 on the Friends tab of the support menu. Make Best Fiends one of your daily wind downs. It's always fun, never frustrating, and keeps you coming back for more. Download Best Fiends for free on the Apple App Store or Google Play today. Remember, that's Friends without the R, Best Fiends. In March 1997, 38-year-old Michael Halligan appeared before the Central Criminal Court, charged with the murder of his estranged wife. Mr Justice Morris was presiding with a jury of nine men and three women. Gregory Murphy, senior counsel, appeared for the state and told the jury that Mr Halligan had left England and come to Dublin the May before, with the intention to, quote-unquote, get rid of his problems. That is, his estranged wife, Martina. In January of 1996, Halligan had moved to England with his two kids. According to the defendant, he had done this after Martina had asked him to, as she wanted to apply to social welfare for deserted wives' allowance. Whatever the impetus, Halligan and his two sons moved to the UK and he settled there quickly, even starting up a new relationship. But still, Halligan had considered the house in Darndale where Martina remained to be his. Halligan harbored feelings that he'd been tricked out of his house. The defendant had arrived in Darndale with his two kids early on the morning of the fifth of May nineteen ninety six and he'd tried to get into the house, but the locks had been changed, and one door was padlocked. He'd then cut the phone lines with a knife, ensuring that Martina would not be able to ring police to enforce the barring order she had against him. Later, Halligan said he'd brought the knife with him to Ireland for the purpose. Of cutting sandwiches. He put the knife in the back pocket of his jeans and then knocked on the door. Halligan had been let in, and he and Martina began fighting. The argument had started in the bedroom and quickly escalated to pushing and shoving. Senior counsel Gregory Murphy said that the court would hear that a neighbor from Buttercup Park had heard a man yell out, quote, Come back, you tramp. The following day, proceedings were adjourned as the court heard that the accused was unwell. The trial resumed on Tuesday the 18th of March 1997. Halligan's girlfriend at the time of Martina's killing, Caroline State, took to the stand. The two had gotten together after Halligan had moved to Reading in the UK and she often minded his kids. The day before Martina's death, Halligan had been preparing for a trip back to Ireland. Ms State recalled that Halligan said the purpose of this trip was to collect furniture from his house and to sort out some things with Martina. She was expecting him back in two days. The witness also said that Halligan had often told her that he hated his wife and hated the fact that she was living in the Darndale house. Caroline continued by explaining that while Halligan was preparing for the trip, he was making sandwiches and made a comment about killing his wife, but at the time she thought he was joking. Caroline State said that Halligan had said once he'd sorted everything out in Dublin, he would return and buy her a ring and they would settle down. Evidence was then given by Martina's eight-year-old son, Shane. On the morning of the 5th of May, he recounted having heard a knocking at the door, followed by shouting. He then heard his mother run to her bedroom with Mr Halligan following her. The boy saw that Halligan had blood on his jumper and on his mouth and chin. Martina was yelling, I'm sorry, I'll get them back for you, and the defendant was slapping her in the face, saying, Sorry is no good. According to Shane, Halligan was yelling about a bike and bunk beds. Shane said he'd noticed a knife sticking out from the back pocket of Halligan's jeans, and right after this, his mother had run out of the house, followed by Michael Halligan. The boy went downstairs too, and by that time, Halligan was on his way back towards the house. Shane saw the defendant throw a bloody knife onto the ground and run off. The young lad explained that he had picked up the knife and thrown it over a fence as he was scared. Then a neighbour from Buttercup Park, Jean Doyle, gave evidence. She had been woken on the morning of the 5th of May by the sound of glass breaking. It was her kitchen window. She ran downstairs to see what was going on and found a woman covered in blood lying on the ground outside her house in her nightdress. Miss Doyle called for help. Jean told the court that she saw blood was pumping from Martina's neck and she was covered in blood too. Such was the damage done that the neighbour didn't recognise Martina at first. Those who arrived to help assumed that Martina was dead due to her condition. Bernie Menton, another neighbour, also came to help. Mrs Menton had done a first aid course and attempted to find Martina's pulse, but she couldn't. Natasha Spencer, who lived next door to the Halligans, recalled that she had heard a woman screaming that morning. She told the court she believed the woman had yelled, Help, he's trying to kill me. Then the defendant's mother gave evidence. Halligan had arrived at her house that morning and he was crying. He told her that he was after killing Martina and that he hadn't meant to do it. Dr Margaret Bolster performed the postmortem on Martina. The 33-year-old had died from hemorrhage and shock due to the stab wounds inflicted on her. One stab from the seven present on Martina's body went right through her neck and a further two went straight through her abdomen to her back. One entered her skull through her left eye and penetrated her brain. The pathologist described two specific wounds as quote, "rapidly fatal." Dr. Bolster told the court that she'd been shown a knife at the time of post-mortem and a knife was also produced in court. She said that the blade had a single cutting edge and could have caused the wounds that she had observed during Martina's autopsy. Dr. Louise McKenna of the Forensic Science Laboratory had identified blood staining on clothing worn by the defendant. The blood matched that of Martina. Detective Garda Cahal Crian told the court that Michael Halligan had presented himself voluntarily at the Garda station. During interviews with the Gardee, the defendant had explained the relationship he had had with Martina and the problems that had emerged in their marriage about six months after. He felt that she had treated his sons badly. Halligan admitted that he'd been angry with Martina because when they were together, she treated her two kids differently to his two kids. He thought that some of her separated female friends were bad influences and he didn't approve of her hanging around with them. He said that Martina had made false allegations against him in order to secure barring orders. Eventually, Halligan said, they had separated and he'd moved to England. While there, he had become angry at the idea that Martina was living in a house that he had invested money and time into, while he was living in a temporary situation in a flat. During the interview, Halligan had told Detective Crine, I think I must have stabbed Martina. I know I told my dad that I killed her. My recollection is that I said, I think I killed her, yet I am now saying I have no recollection of stabbing her. End quote. He also said that he had never intended to cause her serious injury, never mind kill her. He said that his life was quote, all messed up and that he was concerned about the kids. That afternoon, Wednesday the 19th of March, Michael Halligan gave evidence in his own defence. He explained the course of his relationship with Martina from his perspective and their separation. Halligan told the court that in January of 1996 he'd come back to Dublin. The defendant asserted that he and Martina had taken their relationship up again, but three days after he arrived back, Martina had left the house. Described elsewhere as her escaping, And she'd gone directly to the guards. In the end, Halligan had returned to England. Questioning then moved on to the trip that Halligan had made in May of 1996. He was also asked about his relationship with Caroline State, and when asked if he had intended to return to England and marry her, Halligan had openly sneered at the idea and laughed at the very notion of marrying Caroline. It was Halligan's evidence that he didn't usually drink, but he'd had a lot of beer on his journey to Dublin. When he arrived in Darndale, he climbed a wall at the back garden and discovered that the lock on the door had been changed, which had made him angry from the offing. Halligan said that the argument had begun between him and Martina when she told him that she had gotten rid of his bike and his kids' bunk beds. He said he'd never been that angry before. She'd walked out of the house and when he followed her, she started screaming and running. Then there was a fight and after he got his kids and left, going to a friend's house, Halligan said that everything happened so quickly that he could not remember exactly what had happened. Halligan said, quote, I knew something terrible had happened. It was an awful fight and I ran and I just saw blood on my jumper, end quote. He told his defence counsel, Anthony Salmon Senior Counsel, that he did not recall having a knife. However, he said he accepted that he was responsible for Martina's death. Michael Halligan said in court that he had no recollection of stabbing Martina, saying quote, I feel terrible about it. I'd like to apologise to the family for it as well, end quote. Questioning from the defence focused on Halligan's level of intent because it had been ruled earlier in the court that his counsel, Mr Salmon, was not allowed to put provocation to the jury. Then the jury began deliberations and returned with their verdict on Thursday the 20th of March. They found Michael Halligan guilty of Martina's murder. He was sentenced to life. Martina's mother cried openly in court and had to be helped from the court when the sentence was passed while Michael Halligan stood impassive. After the verdict, Detective Sergeant Cryan said he was relieved at the outcome, noting, quote, too often in cases of spouse killing the jury settle for manslaughter when it's clearly the more serious crime, end quote. Michael Halligan's appeal was dismissed the following year. On the afternoon of Monday the 6th of May 1996, Gardy in Mount Wrath, County Leash, received a phone call. The call was from Nigel Bainbridge, the adult son of an English couple who had bought the old rectory on the far side of the town. Nigel was the youngest of the Bainbridge's three kids and in 1996 he was 28 years old. His mother Patricia was originally from Leash but she'd emigrated to the UK in the 1950s and there had met David. The two married. In 1986, the Bainbridges bought the large property on the north side of the small Midlands Market Town. It was set back from the road, which was the main route out to the larger town of Port Leash, about a ten-minute drive away, and the large plot of land was bordered on one side by an old graveyard in the town, attached to St Peter's Church of Ireland. What Nigel had to say on the phone call was startling, and caused Detective Sergeant James Arthur to immediately leave the Garda station and make the three-minute journey to the rectory. When Sergeant Arthur's arrived, Nigel met him at the entrance to the house and told him that his mother, Patricia, was lying dead inside the house. David Bainbridge was in the garden, unaware that anything was wrong until he noticed a commotion at the front of the house involving his son and the local Garda sergeant. Nigel had become very agitated when Sergeant Arthur's told him that he was under arrest. It was then that David Bainbridge ran into his house and saw that his wife was dead on the kitchen floor. Patricia had been walking down the stairs in their home when she had been apparently shot in the back with a 22 caliber shotgun. The hunting rifle was a licensed and legally held firearm registered to David Bainbridge, but in this instance was wielded by his son, Nigel on Wednesday, the eighth of May Nigel Bainbridge, Patricia's twenty eight year old son, appeared at a special sitting of the district court in Port Leash before Judge Mary Martin. The court heard from Sergeant James Arthur's that Nigel had been arrested at a quarter to four in Portleash Garda Station for the murder of his mother. Judge Martin ordered medical and psychiatric assessments for the accused man. Bainbridge was remanded to Mountjoy prison this first appearance in court was just 3 minutes long nigel bainbridge's trial for the murder of his mother patricia opened before mr justice flood at the central criminal court in dublin on thursday the 20th of february 1997 nigel pleaded not guilty to the murder Paul O'Higgins, senior counsel, prosecuted on behalf of the DPP and said that the mental element of the case would be of most concern to the jury. O'Higgins went on to say that this was a tragic and appalling case, explaining that Patricia had been killed just a few months after Nigel had come from England to stay with his parents. In the weeks running up to the incident which led to her killing, Patricia and her husband had been in touch with doctors about their son's condition. They were concerned about his behaviour and his mental stability. A GP had advised that they should commit Nigel, but Patricia in particular did not want to do this. Brendan Grogan, senior counsel, was defending and agreed broadly with what his learned friend had outlined in his opening speech and said that the facts of the case were not in dispute. The only question was whether Nigel had been legally sane at the time of his mother's killing. Detective Sergeant James Arthurs described the events of the afternoon of the 6th of May. Nigel rang Mount Rathgarda Station at a quarter to five that afternoon and spoke to him. The sergeant recalled that Nigel had said, quote, Hello Jim, I'm after killing my mother, end quote. Sergeant Arthurs told the court that Nigel sounded calm and had explained to him that his mother was in the kitchen and his father was out cutting the grass. Nigel had put the gun he had used into the sitting room and asked that Gardie hurry to get to the house. Patricia Bainbridge had been shot once on the right side of her back, but the bullet had ricocheted off bone and went on to penetrate her heart. Sergeant Arthurs and another Garda arrived on scene at a quarter past five. Mr Bainbridge was still in the garden cutting the grass, apparently unaware that anything was amiss in the house. Arthurs shouted out to Mr Bainbridge and then the front door of the house opened and Nigel came out. He approached the guardie and said that he had killed his mum because she was quote, poisoning his mind. End quote. Nigel then stuck out his tongue which had a green and white coating and asked did they see the discoloration, which he believed was evidence of poisoning. Sergeant Arthurs then told Nigel he was being arrested and Nigel began to resist aggressively. At that point, David Bainbridge saw the struggle and went into the house. He saw his wife lying dead on the floor and came rushing back out, yelling at Nigel. He screamed, quote, You bastard, you killed her. End quote. The distraught father went after Nigel and tried to kick the 28 year old as he struggled with Gardie on the ground. After testimony from the Garda, David Bainbridge took to the stand. He'd been attending court with members of the charity Victim Support at his side to provide moral support to him during the proceedings. David Bainbridge outlined how he and Patricia had married in the late 50s. They'd lived in Worthing in the UK and ran a guest house. In 1986, they'd purchased their home in Leash. The couple spent time in both Ireland and the UK from that point on. As an adult, their youngest son, Nigel, had begun working in furnishing in England, but he had also come to Ireland with his parents in 1986. After a stint without work, he took up a job in a hotel and in the bars in Dublin Airport. At that time, Nigel had stayed in Ireland for about a year. In 1995, the couple were in Ireland when they got a series of phone calls from their eldest son, Robert. Nigel kept going missing. David said he and Patricia travelled back to England to help deal with the situation. Nigel was eventually located in Paris. He was found naked in the River Seine. Nigel had also recently become seriously violent with his business partner. When his parents saw him on his return to the UK, Nigel was in a bad state. He wasn't taking care of himself and his behaviour was unusual. He took to camping out on the flat roof of their guest house and talked incessantly of religious matters, in addition to reading complex medical and chemistry books and making bizarre drawings. David Bainbridge told the court that initially he had thought that Nigel was malingering and was putting on these strange behaviours, calling them, quote, an elaborate charade. Nigel came back to stay with his parents in Ireland in September of 1995. Mr. Bainbridge explained on the stand that after the move to Leash, Nigel had stayed in his room most of the time and did very little work. He would only really come out to cook, and David described this as an elaborate cooking procedure. Nigel was apparently convinced that his food was somehow contaminated. Not long after the move, around Christmas in 1995, Nigel's parents had asked for a doctor to come and examine their son. A GP, Dr. John Lyons, came and spoke to Nigel and his parents, though Nigel had twice refused to see Dr. Lyons and locked himself in his bedroom when the doctor visited the house. After the meetings, the doctor consulted with a psychiatrist colleague. Based on the information that they had, the two doctors determined that Nigel was suffering from psychosis. Dr. Lyons' colleague had even offered to examine Nigel in his home. The Bainbridges were informed that the doctors felt the best course of action for Nigel at the time was for him to receive inpatient care in a mental health hospital. But David Bainbridge recalled that his wife had wanted to keep their son home, naturally being resistant to the idea of institutionalising him. He said, quote, Pat did not wish that to happen. She orchestrated her own downfall, End quote. Dr. John Lyons also gave evidence and outlined that Nigel's parents had contacted him as they were concerned about his behavior and how he had isolated himself. On May 7th, the doctor saw Nigel and told the court that he had appeared, quote, out of touch with reality, completely mad. End quote. Dr. Lyons informed the parents of the conclusion that he had reached and said that he thought the best course of action was to check Nigel into a hospital, but the family did not want to do that. Lyons said that he believed Nigel was floridly psychotic at the time of Patricia's killing. In his opinion, Nigel probably had paranoid schizophrenia and he was still ill with this at the time of the trial. He had likely been experiencing symptoms for at least six months before the killing. Then, Dr. Charles Smith, the director of the Central Mental Hospital, gave evidence to the court that Nigel Bainbridge had been in the hospital since shortly after his mother's death. He added that he didn't think that Patricia Bainbridge's killing would have happened had Nigel not been ill. On cross-examination by the prosecution, Dr. Smith said that Nigel likely knew what he was doing and that it was not lawful at the time. After this, Dr. Brian McCaffrey told the court that he had examined Nigel on the 7th and 12th of February 1997 at the request of the state. It was his conclusion that Nigel was suffering from a serious psychiatric illness on the day of the shooting. During one examination, Nigel described his mother as a warm and tender, lovely woman who was very caring. He said he never meant to kill her and that he just wanted to frighten her as he believed she was poisoning him. He was asked if he could have stopped himself from shooting her. Nigel responded, quote, I could have done if I was well, end quote. At the end of the two days of hearings in the trial, Nigel's defence counsel, Brendan Grogan, commented during his closing speech, quote, Motherly love took over and Mrs Bainbridge chose not to take that route. It's a tragedy, for which no one can be blamed, end quote. The jury then retired to consider their verdict. They returned with a unanimous verdict of guilty but insane. Mr. Justice Flood remanded Nigel Bainbridge into custody in the Central Mental Hospital at the pleasure of the government. This episode is sponsored in part by our good friends at BetterHelp. Men's Rea listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com forward slash men's. I adore anything that makes life easier and BetterHelp is the perfect solution for looking after your mental health. What could be easier than an online portal where you can video chat, call, or text with your therapist from the comfort of your own home? And BetterHelp match you with a therapist who is tailored to your needs. And you can start online professional counseling in less than 48 hours. With their broad range of expertise, you can find the kind of therapist that might not be available in your area. And BetterHelp is available worldwide. BetterHelp is also more affordable than traditional offline counseling. Financial aid is available and you can send messages to your therapist between sessions and get thoughtful responses. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. Visit betterhelp.com forward slash mens betterhelp.com forward slash M-E-N-S to join the over 2 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they're recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. And right now, BetterHelp are offering Men's Radio listeners 10% off your first month. Just visit betterhelp.com forward slash men's. This episode is also sponsored in part by Manscaped. The holidays came early over at Manscaped, and honestly, it happens to everyone. In fact, this is great because Manscaped just launched new products, including their all-new ultra-premium body wash and a two-in-one shampoo and conditioner. Give yourself or a manly man you know and at least tolerate the gift of beautiful skin, hair, and balls this holiday season. Head on over to manscaped.com and use the code MENS to nab yourself 20% off plus free shipping. Jingle balls to the walls, lads. Listen up. No judgement here for anyone who's into Santa, but what's probably less appealing is having Santa's beard going on in your pants. It's time to leave your significant other some cookies and milk at the bottom of your chimney. And, of course, I'm talking about the Manscaped Performance Package 4.0. Inside the performance package, you'll find the signature lawnmower 4.0 to reduce cuts on your nuts, and the performance package also includes the crop preserver and crop reviver to keep your North Pole feeling and smelling fresh. And now, Manscaped is going beyond the groin with their new ultra-premium body wash. It's infused with aloe vera and sea salt to keep your skin feeling clean, nice and moisturized. They also just launched their 2-in-1 shampoo and conditioner, which has key ingredients with benefits that include hydrating, nourishing, conditioning the scalp and strengthening your hair at the same time. It is the season to load up on Manscaped products. So get yourself, your dad, your brother and friends the best gift of all, the Manscaped Performance Package 4.0. Every guy out there needs to add Manscaped to their wish list this season. Get 20% off with free shipping with the code MENS at Manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at Manscaped.com using the code MENS. Clean up your nuts and make Santa proud this year, even if you're on the naughty list. On the seventh of May, nineteen ninety-six, a man arrived at Newcastle West Garda Station in County Limerick and informed the Garda that a woman had been killed. The man arrived at the Garda station around lunchtime that day and gave his name as Patrick Collins. He said his wife Angela was dead and gave the Garda an address at Pound Street in Ballingarry, a village about fifteen miles away. The house was owned by Patrick. Patrick Collins was brought back into the station to be interviewed, while officers were dispatched to the house in the center of the rural village. There, officers did indeed find Angela's body. She was found dead in an upstairs bedroom. Initial indications were that she had been strangled, but there were no visible signs of injury. Patrick Collins was then arrested under Section 4 of the Criminal Justice Act. It seemed that Angela had been killed. After a domestic dispute, Angela Keane was from Ennis, County Clare. Early reports, before Patrick Collins was named as her husband in the press, were that she may have been visiting the Ballingarry area. She'd been married for just a short period of time, and the couple had no kids. The two spent occasional weekends at the house in Ballingarry. Patrick Collins had inherited the property from his mother. A villager told the Irish Independent, quote, Angela was a very nice and pleasant woman with a lovely personality. We are all deeply shocked that something like this could happen in our midst. Quote. Collins was charged with the unlawful killing of his wife Angela on Wednesday, the 8th of May, 1996, and was before Judge William Early at Abbeyfield District Court for a short hearing where he was remanded in custody. Sergeant John Whelan gave evidence of arrest. Collins had had nothing to say when he was charged. The following week, Collins was back before the court, this time sitting in Adair, and there Judge Mary O'Halloran recommended that he undergo psychiatric assessment while in custody at Limerick Prison. Over a year later, on Monday, the 14th of July, 1997, a jury of six men and six women were impaneled before Ms. Justice Catherine McGuinness. Patrick Collins pleaded not guilty to the murder of his wife. Anthony Salmon, senior counsel for the defendant, informed the court that he had received reports late in the day and needed time to review them. He requested an adjournment of the proceedings to look over them. This was granted by the judge, and the hearing of evidence was to begin the following day. However, on Tuesday, the 15th of July, counsel for both the prosecution and the defense told the court that additional medical evidence had to be gotten before they could proceed. The judge consented to an application to adjourn the trial and dismissed the jury. Collins was remanded in custody, and Catherine McGuinness ordered that a new trial date be set. This was just one of many high-profile and serious trials that had been adjourned at that time in the criminal courts and Justice McGuinness said that she was concerned with the number of cases that had to be put off. She noted that there was no one to blame for the situation but that the result of them was that people were spending long periods in detention awaiting the hearing of evidence against them. Senior Counsel Salmon told Justice McGuinness that Mr Justice Gagan had said something similar and that many members of the bar were also concerned with the delays. These concerns over delays to justice proved to be warranted, as it would be over a year before the matter was before the court again. Patrick Collins's trial would not take place, however. In February of 1999, he pleaded guilty to manslaughter the plea was acceptable to the prosecution and collins faced sentencing on the 19th of february that year at that hearing the court was told that collins had made no application for bail since his initial arrest and remand the defendant's background was also outlined for the court collins was born in the channel islands but his father was from ballingarry county limerick in his youth collins had attended a cbs in cork But he never completed his leaving certificate, something that was not uncommon at the time. He moved to England after leaving school and worked on building sites. Then Collins returned to Ireland and joined the Army, but he was discharged after 14 months for repeated unapproved absences and for being a bad influence on other Army recruits. In previous years, Collins had spent some time in psychiatric hospitals in England and he'd been diagnosed with a severe personality disorder. He also had a number of previous convictions in England, though he had never served any time in prison. One of the convictions involved the possession of a hand axe. There were also charges pending against him in England relating to a serious assault of his former partner, who had since died of natural causes. More was heard about the victim in the case, too, and how it was that she and Collins had started their relationship. Angela Keane was an outgoing woman from a big family in Ennis. She had worked in a local shop for 18 years before taking up a position as a nurse's aide in 1992. She stayed living in her parents' house, which she eventually inherited. She had met Collins through a lonely hearts ad placed in Ireland's own magazine in 1991. They developed a relationship and when Collins moved back to Ireland permanently in August of 1995, after his mother's death, the two were married. It had all happened very quickly. Angela had had no idea about Collins's troubled past, his history of violence and mental disturbances, and his trouble with the law. After the marriage, the formerly outgoing woman became withdrawn very quickly and relatives and friends noticed that her appearance had even deteriorated. Just before her death, while attending a wedding, Angela had confided to one of her sisters that she was unhappy in her relationship. Angela and her sister had planned to meet on the 8th of May to talk through the problems that Angela was having. Dr. Helen O'Neill from the Central Mental Hospital provided a report to the court for the purposes of sentencing. She said that Collins was receiving treatment in Dundrum and it was her determination that Collins had chronic paranoid schizophrenia and an underlying paranoid personality. After this, Inspector Joseph Rowe outlined the events of May 1996 for the court. Collins and Angela had travelled that weekend from the Keene family home in Ennis to Ballingarry. They went to a pub in the Limerick village and while there, Collins accused Angela of encouraging the flirting of a musician who was there. The court was told that this appeared to be the beginning of the row between the couple that weekend. The next morning, Collins strangled Angela. Gardy believed that Angela had died sometime around a quarter to one that day. Patrick then drove to the local Garda station in Newcastle West. He entered the station and repeatedly said, quote, I'm the man who murdered my wife, lock me up forever, End quote. Inspector Rowe said that Collins was known for what he called over-the-top reactions to normal, insignificant disagreements. The court heard that Angela's family were extremely traumatised by her death. Some of her siblings had decided to attend the sentencing hearing. Dr. Francis not a psychiatrist, gave evidence that Collins would need continued treatment and did not recommend a quote-unquote punitive environment. Even while medicated, Dr. Nott believed that there was no way to be sure that Collins would not pose a danger to society. Mr. Justice Paul Carney said it would have been his preference to order Collins into the care of psychiatrists until they felt it was safe to release him. For the protection of the community. However, his hands were tied given the plea of manslaughter. In his opinion, Colin was, and would continue to be, a danger to life. Patrick Collins was sentenced to nine years for manslaughter, on the higher end of the scale. Mr Justice Kearney said that Collins had given Angela Keane a, quote, unhappy marriage and an utterly pointless death, end quote. After sentencing, one of Angela's sisters, Chris, spoke to Marion Finucan on RTE radio. She said that she was afraid of what might happen should PJ Collins ever be released, continuing, quote, I feel really sorry for any human being if that man gets out, and I would be afraid for my children and my own life. End quote. In the wake of all of these violent crimes, there were calls for an increase in policing. The notorious Murder Squad had been disbanded in 1984. After the Carey Baby scandal, the perceived increase in murders, particularly of women, prompted calls by various politicians for the squad to be reformed. It was argued that the squad had had a considerable amount of expertise and had a high detection rate. Meanwhile, the papers were reporting that Mountjoy Prison was facing a crisis in terms of overcrowding and that drug use within the prison had reached, quote, epidemic proportions. The prison's medical service was also inadequate. This information had actually been revealed in a report of a committee set up by the prison itself. The National Bureau of Criminal Investigations was founded in 1997, when a number of national and specialist services were combined. Within this, the Criminal Investigation Department was set up, which provides support to local Gardaí and conducts investigations into serious crimes, The crime of murder, of course, being within this remit. In 1996, there were 46 killings in Ireland, 19 of which were the murder of women. This was actually an overall decrease on the figures reported the year before. There had been 53 killings, 43 of which were murders in 1995. However, just 8 of those murders were of women. Later studies carried out showed that 1996 did seem to have a peak of female victims of murder compared to the years before and after, though 1997 and 1998 still had higher figures than 94 and 95. According to Women's Aid, between 1996 and 2019, 230 women have been killed in Ireland, averaging around eight cases per year. The total number of murders in Ireland steadily increased throughout the 2000s, though. It appears that there's a predictable level of deaths to expect when it comes to the violent killings of women in Ireland. And, as in 1996, it's still the case that the majority of these crimes will be committed by someone known to the woman, and more often than not, the victims will be killed in their own homes. But the outcry from the media has died down. Screaming headlines about the deaths of women and their safety all but disappeared when the murder rates returned to quote-unquote normal levels. And most murder cases are covered like those we've heard about today, rather than getting the kind of attention and prompting the kind of national debate that the 1996 killings of Veronica Guerin and Sophie Toscan de Plantier did 25 years ago. The stories of Martina, Patricia and Angela are far more typical. And the reality seems to be that nothing has really changed. Thank you for listening to Mens Rea, a true crime podcast. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at or you can send an email to mensreapod at gmail.com. This podcast is made possible in part from generous donations by supporters on Patreon. A special thanks goes out to Kat Harton, Graham McDonnell, Elaine Crowley, Amy Quigley, Ed Doyle, Joe Billington, Owen Rock, and Katie Kirby this week. Thanks to each and every one of you for signing up to support the show. It is hugely important to be able to keep Mens Rea going, and along with my undying love for helping out, you get ad-free and bonus episodes as well as nifty merch. So head on over to patreon.com forward slash mensreapod. Thanks also to our sponsors for this week, Best Fiends, BetterHelp, and Manscaped. Remember, supporting our sponsors supports this show, so check them out in the show notes. If you need help and support, please contact Women's Aid on their 24-hour National Free Phone Helpline, 1-800-341-900. Call 1-800-787-SAFE or text START to 88788 if you're in the US or 0808-2024-7 if you're in the UK. Our theme music is Quinn's song The Dance Begins by Kevin MacLeod. Additional music is by Juanita Meisel and Kevin McLeod. This episode was very slowly researched, written, and produced by me, your host Sinead. All sources for today's episode can be found in the show notes or on our website, www.mensreapod.com. And so, till next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do. If you are looking for a brand new true crime podcast, listen to The Making of a Detective, brought to you by The Irish Sun. The series is out right now and focuses on many of Ireland's most notorious cases and the man who once solved them. In episode one, Pat Mary's story begins with the historic 2007 conviction of the murderer Joe O'Reilly. Put his thumb up and he said, to see a Pat, like, you know, as if to say, F you, you can't get me. Follow along as we share the dramatic details of each case. Download The Making of a Detective, brought to you by The Irish Sun.